the forbidden bromance coming up on love thy neighbor you're listening to the love thy neighbor podcast your home for discussion and analysis of the theology ethics and political philosophy of brian Welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. And today we're taking a little break from, from Beyond Tragedy. We only have a couple chapters left, actually. We're on chapter 13, this is the last episode, and now on to 14 next week. But we're leaving it behind this week to observe a very special holiday, Valentine's Day, by examining a recent piece published in Tablet on the relationship between Jewish theologian and activist Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and, of course, Reinhold Niebuhr. And since it's Valentine's Day, what better subject to tackle than this relationship, this bromance that that budded between these two buddies? Uh, We are honored to have with us today the author of this excellent piece, uh, Mr. Gordon Mailer. Gordon is a distinguished lawyer and columnist with a far-reaching resume. In his legal career, he's worked in uh, the Madoff and FIFA uh, cases. Uh, he's written extensively on, on the law, including the most recent edition of Federal Criminal Practice, which he co-wrote, a massive work, for which the notorious RBG herself called, quote, tremendously valuable As a columnist, his writing has appeared in The Atlantic, Newsweek, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and several others. Gordon, so happy to have you with us. Welcome. Well, it's an honor. uh, It's an honor uh, to be here and an honor for any lawyer to appear on uh, a show involving theology. It doesn't happen happen often enough. (laughs) It doesn't. My brother's a lawyer, actually, and I really want to get him on here, so... But uh, yeah, I, I, we're so happy that you could you can make it on. This is a recent piece that you just came out with. Um, so we're we're happy that we could get you on so quickly. Now, the way this is going to work um, for our audience is we've each read the article and we've all come up with some questions for Gordon. And we're just going to kind of go around. I'll go first and then Aaron and then uh, or I'm sorry, I'll go first and then Zach and then Aaron. And we'll just kind of go round and round, have a conversation until we get to about an hour. And then we'll cut it off. So um, I'll go ahead and go first. This piece is called An Unlikely Friendship on Seminary Row, looking back on the connection between Abraham Joshua Heschel and Reinhold Niebuhr 50 years after their deaths. Gordon, why did you write this? Well, it comes out of uh, a convoluted personal story. Uh, I was uh, a Denver boy. I grew up out West, uh, but uh, moved to New York to go to law school. And I then uh, became a federal prosecutor in New York and so stayed here. And one of the judges uh, in our federal district uh, was a guy named Charles Proctor Sifton. I think he was from the Proctor and Gamble family. But he he certainly had a patrician background, and he was married to um, Elizabeth Niebuhr Sifton, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's uh, only daughter. And 
to put it delicately, he was a difficult man. Uh, I'm not sure why. Uh, he was very smart and a fine judge, but he he really uh, could be very difficult, particularly on young prosecutors. But people would say, you know, that guy, his father-in-law is very famous, and they pronounce his name, they get his name wrong because it, it was, uh, you know, foreign-sounding. And I sort of filed it away, and they said, "Oh, he was a, he was a great, the greatest Protestant American Protestant theologian of the 20th century." And being interested in that stuff, I just sort of filed it away. Fast forward, um, I moved to the Upper West Side of Manhattan 20 plus years ago, settled here with my family. And on the Upper West Side, when you walk up near Columbia University, there are these two seminaries with great histories behind them, uh, Union Theological Seminary and the Jewish Theological Seminary. And more than 20 years ago, I said, boy, that would really be an interesting angle on American religion to look at the this sort of crossing Broadway theme there on different sides of Broadway. And um, so that was my initial interest. And it, it looks like I just put this together, but it was actually years of, of, of work and failure uh, and probably have half a book of, of this stuff different different uh, aspects of it. Um, but it seemed to me at the end that the biographical part, taking the most famous scholar at each institution, Niebuhr at UTS and, and Heschel at JTS, was the one that finally worked after many failures. And, uh, you know, thank God I was able to bring it to fruition. So long answer to a short question. No, that's a great answer. Um, you, you bring up I love how, so I went to Union and uh, you bring up kind of the setting of this so wonderfully, how you talk about how they're kind of two cherubim on both sides of Broadway. And I, I actually, my wife and I when, I, when I was at Union, we both worked at Broadway Coffee Center, okay, which is right in between the two seminaries. Um, it's perfectly placed between them both. And we would serve both seminaries as kind of their primary resource for, you know, course readers and dissertation binding and stuff like that. So I kind of worked right in between those two cherubim you talked about. And of course, you know, being a student at Union, my boss was Hasidic Jew. Um, Eva Bitstritsky was her name. So I got to see these two cultures that you talk about coming together on a daily basis and got to participate in it. And it was it was, uh, it was a great, memorable experience. You know, and it's so interesting because everybody seems to have a little bit of a, it's kind of a funny phenomenon with, with Niebuhr that I'm finding that a lot of people that kind of end up encountering him have these kind of funny stories about how they're connected in some way. You know what I mean? Like we, we were, we're gonna have uh, Andrew Basevich on at the end of uh, June. And so I was watching some of his things to prepare and you know, he, he, he <laughs> He found out about Niebuhr just at a, at a yard sale and he just found a book and in the in the front in the front of his book it, it it's apparent that gave uh irony of American history to their kid when they graduated high school and he just found this book with that's inside and he started reading it and he's like man this is this is great and he's already like into his career and stuff and it's just it's funny how these you know it like your story with the judge it's kind of interesting how these connections are made yeah what a funny story yeah the so, judge that no one liked <laughs> uh, or was, you know, well, he was well known for how harsh he was or whatever. He was your so passing. 
to me. Why, why, why tablet? Why did you, why did you, why would you publish it on tablet? You know, it's very interesting. It was my first choice. It's not as if it, uh, I had submitted it elsewhere. It was the only place I submitted. Um, you know, I have a cousin who is a professor at the Columbia School of Journalism. And I, uh, even though I'm a Denver boy, I have some, and my mother is Canadian, I have some New York roots uh, on my father's side. And so I sent it to him. Um, he had been uh, the religion uh, reporter at the New York Times, along with uh, Gustav Niebuhr, who was a relative of Reinhold. I guess uh, uh, they, they split the beat. This is 20 years ago, and uh, which is another sort of Niebuhr connection. So he read it and he liked it. And he said, tablet is the place to, to publish it. He said that, you know, uh, a wonky piece, 3,500 words, you know, there's not a lot of uh, magazines that'll publish it. One interesting, fascinating uh, little footnote there, the guy who edits it was a very distinguished longtime editor who was the managing editor of Billboard magazine, the music magazine. And he was a tough editor, but, and he forced me to reduce the, the number of words um, but in the end, he was a very kind editor and he, he was very supportive and really didn't didn't mess with it much. So I think it was a great choice. And, uh, hey, it reached you guys in uh, Ohio and Washington State. How can I how can you do better than that? Well, you know, we're always we're always trolling. We're always trolling Twitter looking for the, the Niebuhr articles. Yeah, <laughs> stood out. Right. And we're happy we did. We, yeah. we came across that. This is this is great. So, Zach, you want to take the next question? Well, yeah, that, that, I, I'll take another question for sure. Um, so, what, like, you got into a little bit of like you settled on these these two characters to kind of represent this this hope that you were trying to bring these two ideas together across of, of Broadway. What was it about them that really like stuck out to you? I guess I could say. Like, what was it about that kind of eventually just kind of fully grabbed you and pulled you into like, okay, like these are the characters. Like, when did you when did you have that kind of epiphany? Because it sounds like this is a long road. This was not a, a short, you know, this wasn't something you just decided, oh, hey, like I got to write an article, got to do it. Because a lot of times when we encounter articles, it's like, hey, somebody asked me to do this. I, I, I wrote them an article. Boom. It was like a weekend thing. This is like a, a passion project for you, though. This is something where it was like, I have something I want to express. I need to express it. So when, when was that moment, I guess? Yes. Well, I have to introduce two other uh, individuals, uh, one of whom Cliff referenced earlier. There's uh, two, two remarkable women who have been my teachers, um, and they're on opposite sides of Broadway, and they themselves are close friends. So one, uh, and I guess Cliff knows her and studied with her, is a woman named Mary Boys. She's a remarkable nun uh, who's who has uh, you know has has many many remarkable qualities, but is one of the leading scholars in in the, the field of of Jewish Christian relations. And the woman on the other side, her name is Shuli Rubin Schwartz, and she became the first uh, woman chancellor at JTS. There have only been eight of them since 1886, and she's the first woman. And three years ago, so I've sort of gotten to know them both over the course of more than a decade. And they said to me maybe over three years ago, hey, you know, Mary and I are, I think Shuley mentioned, Mary and I are teaching a course together and it's going to be union students and JTS students. And, and that's, you know, that's my crossing Broadway. Uh, it, it epitomized that. 
And so I audited the course. It wasn't the first time I had done that. Um, and then, of course, COVID hit. And I just struggled with, uh, you know, how to, how to, how to write that. Um, in the end, I did write it. And I, I have, as I said, I, I have, you know, probably half a book of this stuff, which I can uh, uh, perhaps work on uh, when I reduce my uh, full-time legal load um, in, a, in some years from now. But it just, um, struggling with it and failing with that class per se, it just hit me one day that I had thought about Niebuhr for over 30 years and here was Heschel on the other side. They were their 50th anniversary was coming up. I said, "It's a it's a shot." But I'll read biographies of both of them. I'll try to meld some of the issues that I've learned about in the in the course that Mary and Shuli were teaching, and let's see what comes out. And indeed, it seemed to work. That's really interesting. Um, so. You were once the deputy district deputy district attorney general uh, under Bill Clinton, correct? Is that right? Well, you, you got the title. Uh, it's it's uh, it sounds more impressive than it is. But uh, <laughs> the Department of Justice has in Washington. I, I I did that for a year, but it has various divisions. So it has an antitrust division, a criminal division, and there's an assistant attorney general for each of the eleven divisions, and he has some deputies. So I was a deputy in one of those, uh, one of those divisions. So, well, so the timeline, you see, you started thinking about Niebuhr about 30 years ago. So, and that probably is around the same time, right? When you started that position. So my, my question to you is, is there a particular figure between Niebuhr and Heschel that you relate more to than the other? Um, and do, does one of these figures inform your legal work and your, and your personal life more than the other? Well, I think it's a very, it's a very uh, good question, Aaron, and and the answer is, is on the surface counterintuitive, but when you think about it, not really. I find myself much more attracted to Niebuhr than I do to Heschel. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, first, I admire both of them as human beings. I mean, I think uh, I know uh, all three of you are pastors, and I know you, you struggle with uh, the disrepute that has all too often been attributed to people in the clergy, certainly the last 20 and 30 years, and you could argue for uh, a long time before that, if you lived in France, perhaps, with its uh, long history of anti-clerical sentiment. But um, here were two people who really lived lives of righteousness, of integrity. Um, they were not narrow-minded in any sense, even though they came from very insular backgrounds. So I do um, uh, warm much more to, to Niebuhr, which is not my tradition. He, he's the Protestant uh, guy and I'm, I'm the Jewish guy, but um, I find that in the practice of criminal law, which is my specialty, um, you know, his view of human nature is much closer uh, to mine. Uh, I find Heschel, uh, you know, inspiring, but a bit airy compared to Niebuhr. Now, this kind of gets into that a little bit. Um, so Heschel's background, you you bring this up in, in the piece when you're kind of um, 
showing how they contrast. Heschel comes from a very rough background. His, his mother, three sisters were murdered. And we can assume, I don't think you said this directly, we can assume it's probably from the Third Reich. Heschel said that he's an optimist against his better judgment. This, I think that this certainly ties into their distinct views on human nature and sin. But it's interesting that Heschel lost his mother and three sisters to the Third Reich, and yet it was Niebuhr who became more of the pessimist. And it was Heschel who came more of the of the optimist. Now, I think on this podcast, we've all kind of all but nailed down why, you know, what drove Niebuhr to his more sober view of the world. But I wonder what you would attribute Heschel's optimism to. Where does that come from? Yes. Um, well, I'm not sure. I, I think the piece argues that superficially uh, they seem like night and day. But when you when you dig down into them, they weren't that far apart. Niebuhr wasn't as pessimistic as uh, somebody coming into him for the first time would believe. And Heschel wasn't as optimistic as as others would uh, would uh, tag him with. In the mid fifties, I think Heschel, of course, Niebuhr was fifteen years older and was you know was world famous, and Heschel was sort of starting out. And he wrote a fascinating, little known piece evaluating Niebuhr's thought and what he. Uh, and really within the context of Jewish tradition, although although he, he's very respectful of Niebuhr and, you know, sort of touches glancingly on the question of original sin, he largely, um, you know, he largely says that Niebuhr's views were, you know, um, pretty well aligned with, um, you know, with the um, religion of the Hebrew prophets that he, you know, was so inspired by. So I think that um, uh, Heschel wasn't as optimistic as you you might expect, but I think that it's a mystery as to how he could have endured as much as he did um, and still claim optimism. I think just as Niebuhr struggled with uh family uh, depression, uh, Niebu uh, Heschel also struggled with it silently. People, his biographer, uh, Edward Kaplan, who's, whose father, by the way, was the head of the NAACP for 10 years, uh, Kivy Kaplan. Um, so Edward Kaplan uh, notes that there were times when Heschel could be aloof, um, uh, moody, and one has to think that, you know, he was remembering his uh, mother and three sisters murdered by the Nazis. Um, he didn't talk about it much, um, and he didn't write about it much because it was such a trauma. Um, but one has to believe that, for sure, that it affected him deeply and uh, caused him to temper his view of human nature. But he became um, a positive person nonetheless, and that makes him even more admirable. I kind of have a follow-up question to that. You had uh, mentioned when Niebuhr kind of found that language of irony, that came to kind of a better description of uh, not just sin, uh, Niebuhr's view of sin, but also possibly a bridge into a more, a more fundamentally Jewish conception. I was wondering if you could say more about that. Is irony kind of a category where kind of we could have more of an interreligious dialogue there? 
uh, between our great traditions. I, I absolutely think so, Cliff. Um, I think that, you know, historically, Jewish thinkers, uh, you know, maybe reflexively heard, oh, you know, Niebuhr's, Niebuhr's conceptions are too tied to original sin. There was a, a, a Jewish thinker who was a, a, a great religious sociologist named Will Herberg, who I mentioned in the piece, and he became the uh, sort of the prime uh, Jewish Niburian. But I think that it was a union professor named Roger Shin, who also taught it at, at JTS, uh, was, was one of the one of the pioneers in that area. And I found that among the most interesting pieces uh, that sort of adjusted my view of Niebuhr, that he he moved away or he saw irony as uh, something quite similar to uh, to sin in the sense that they both deal with human limitations. They, they both deal with laughing at ourselves, uh, understanding our own, you know, that we all have our own uh, peculiarities and our own, uh, you know, little quirks. And uh, irony induces humility, just as sin, um, a, a sense of sin induces humility. So I think that is that is something where the two traditions absolutely can uh, meld, although, you know, Niebuhr protested, uh, and I think I put this in there too, that he didn't find any major difference between his view of sin, and the, he uses the Hebrew term yetzer hara, or evil inclination, which, you know, goes back to the book of Genesis. So once again, I think just as the differences between Niebuhr and Heschel seem big on the surface, but actually we're not as big. I think the theological differences also um, seem big, but really we're not as big in either Heschel's mind or Niebuhr's. What you're saying would be music to Matt Anderson's ears because yeah. he's a, a lot of what he's trying to do is pull Niebuhr back into the Jewish Hebraic tradition um, that he's kind of been alienated from uh, ever since his death. So uh, yeah, that, that's a very profound insight. And it kind of, my, my, my my next question, or the, the the question that I was really wanted to ask you about, and really kind of unpack, one of the things we've also noticed: everyone describes the style of Niebuhr and his approach with kind of different terminology. So, like um, you said, that both Hesh, both Niebuhr and Heschel were aphoristic essayists. So, could you like unpack that for us? Like, what 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 do you mean by that? What is um, how how do they both kind of speak in that style? Well, I mean, people who don't know Niebuhr, uh, Zach, you know, will know the serenity prayer, right? Which is, which is aphoristic, you know, it's, it's very catchy and they'll say, Oh, that's the guy who wrote the serenity prayer or his second best known, uh, statement about, uh, use the word man as a person, uh, as opposed to person, but man's, uh, capacity for, what is it? Man's capacity for evil, Man's inclination to injustice makes democracy. Sorry, so man's inclination awesome. <laughs> to justice makes democracy possible. Man's right. injustice makes democracy next. And that's yes. right. So, there, uh, thank you, <laughs> thank you for uh, rescuing me there, Aaron. Welcome, uh, <laughs> but but there there you go. I mean that that's an aphorism. Um, you know, Heschel Heschel trafficked in that as well. Because though they were guys who were on the lecture circuit a lot and really, 
enjoyed it. I mean, poor, poor Niebuhr suffered a stroke because he just never knew when to say enough was enough. And Ashley too was on the road constantly. This is, you know, prior to Zoom. And so he would always try to, to, to get, you know, catchy phrases. Sometimes they would hit, sometimes they would miss. So all I'm, all I mean is that, um, you know, they were, they were always eager to capture an audience uh, in a lecture with something catchy that would be remembered. Uh, and I think they, they wrote their essays, perhaps not all of their essays or the entirety of their essay with that in mind. And it's, yeah. it's important to realize too, the way that you're putting this in the context where you're saying neither one of them were these stuffy academics that were systematizing and writing these serious, you know, peer reviewed, you know, uh, syllogistically weighted, uh, you know, essays. These were preachers. They were men of the people. They, you know, they they expelled a common wisdom. Um, it wasn't just, uh, it almost seemed like, I could speak for Niebuhr, it, it almost seemed like he was averse to kind of that, uh, that stringent type of academia. Um, he was the country bumpkin from Missouri, you know? Um, so when we're talking aphoristic, an aphoristic essay, we're talking about things that can easily latch on to the public and things that, you know, it, it's it's not so aloof. It's it's not so up in the clouds and on the on ivory tower, you know, um, but something close and imminent to the people. Well, and, and I guess I have a follow-up question too, and that is, do you think that this is like kind of lacking in um, public religious discourse? Because I feel like that's, it's something that like, I kind of like to look around and maybe that's just because everybody feels this way, you know, during their, their own era. But I kind of look around and I kind of like try to think to myself, like, who, who is like these guys? You know, who, who presents like this, who really uh, not just captures an audience, but really, I mean, you walk away kind of like, okay, I need to, I need to change something. And not just because, you know, you feel guilty about something or something like that, but they kind of just show you, you know what I mean? They show you in, by um, almost like confrontation with the truth, I guess you could say. Yeah, absolutely. And look, all three of you have made the 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 countercultural choice to become uh, pastors. And, you know, when you look back to the 1950s and one of the other sort of pieces that I uh, I hope maybe to, to, to finish up and, and, and publish contrasts not Union and uh, JTS as much as the current time in the 1950s when they were uh, both uh, in at their peak or near their peak. And they were much more public figures than, than pastors or rabbis would be today. I mean, Niebuhr was on the cover of Time magazine, you know, and, and one of the chancellors of the Jewish Theological Seminary was on the cover of Time magazine uh, in the 1940s. Um, you wouldn't see that today, you know, except if it's, you know, Jimmy Swaggart who gets into trouble or, uh, you know, uh, something like that. Uh, one of the things that that motivates me is to sort of take a look at at the alternatives to American religious life that are being offered, and they seem to fall short. Um, and you know that's why I think that um, Heschel and Niebuhr, as I say, still matter because their views of human nature, inspired by you know centuries of tradition 
have something to say to us. And many of the friends that I have are, you know, <clears throat> lapsed Catholics, lapsed Protestants, lapsed Jews, um, and they really, it doesn't speak to them at all. They, they, they are ethical, they are curious, but they really don't find any connection to somebody like Niebuhr or Heschel. And um, I think that's a shame. This. Yeah, you know, it, 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 I totally agree with you because like I read one of the first books I read by Niebuhr that really got me hooked was, I can never say the name correctly, it's uh, uh, Leaves from a Notebook of a Tame Cynic. I got it. There you go. Yeah. And I remember reading this and being like, man, everybody that becomes a pastor should read this book because it was just so honest. You know, like he talks about <clears throat> going to visit a woman who is dying and feeling like a shaman and feeling like, hey, all these doctors are looking at me like I'm a, some sort of shaman, you know, somebody that, you know, they can obviously help her more than I can, but she wants me here. You know what I mean? And, 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 you know, as a, you know, pastor in the 21st century, I relate to that experience. And I really, I totally agree with you that I really think they, j just that one example is one way that I see it, but I really see how they could both really speak to people my age and younger, you know what I mean? In a really kind of compelling way, I guess you could say. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you guys might agree that, you know, polarization is something that um, most Americans say they're really worried about, that, you know, America divided more deeply than it has been. They don't see it getting better. <laughs> and I think that Niebuhr and Heschel were both figures who could bridge divides, as I, I mentioned. They could um, they could speak to people with whom they disagreed with. I uh, recall, I listened to your podcast with Matt Anderson and, uh, uh, you know, there was a discussion of, of Niebuhr's relationship with Karl Barth. And uh, I, again, uh, you know, uh, would be a fool to venture into the nuances, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, theology and the differences between Karl Barth and Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, but um, on a personal level, at least Niebuhr's best known biographer um, says that Niebuhr didn't really have, re really saw uh, Bart as a sort of, uh, I don't know if the word backward figure is appropriate because he was obviously a, a, a very brilliant man who, who also said, you know, you got to go through life with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. But he, he definitely, according to Richard Whiteman Fox, who wrote the best-known biography of Niebuhr, of course, he says that he 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 disagreed with Bart's supernaturalism. That's that's how that's where Fox saw the difference. And um, oh my God, now I have what happened to you, Zach? Happened to me? <laughs> what was the question? I was gonna let let me see. Are you? Are you uh, I I might know where you're going with this. That um, and you don't, we don't want to call Bart backward, but he appeals to a very narrow audience of seriously committed Orthodox Christians. Whereas well, Niebuhr feels out this area in no, in no man's land a little bit. Well, I mean, we could also just put it out there that like, you know, Niebuhr also just called him out for his inaction. I mean, that, that was something that we had uh, uh, Joshua Molden on and he, he, you know, we read his piece from the Oxford uh, Dictionary of Reinhold Niebuhr. And, um, you know, one of the most blaring things that comes out of it is that he, his theology didn't really impact his ethics. You know I mean? I mean? It did to some degree, but it wasn't really clear how you get from your theology to your ethics. And for Niebuhr, it's like, 
your theology has to impact your ethics or it's not theology. And, you know, I, I don't mean to bring this up just to bash Barth right now, but, you know, there was an article just published about his, you know, 10 year affair, uh, Bart's 10 year affair. There was, you know, in reading their correspondence between him and his mistress, there was a really compelling, you know, I really felt more on Niebuhr's camp on that, you know, I mean, because of what one of the things is that his, there was almost this disconnect between his, you know, the, the ethical realities that existed in his life and the theological realities that he spoke about. And I think maybe Niebuhr knew more than we thought he did. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm not saying that he knew about the affair or anything, but he might've been able to identify that about Bart. He might've been able to identify, Hey, this guy's theology isn't matching up with um, his ethics. They don't, they don't, there's no way to get from one to the other. Um, We should be really careful in this area. Yeah. Just because we need to be careful with attributing kind of ad hominems against his theology from kind of his life choices. I see what you're saying, Zach. But really really where we're going with the main point is kind of you have this erudite, dogmatic, uh, narrow theologian for, for the committed Christians. And then you have this aphoristic, this very worldly uh theologian um who is chiseling out a space for uh for the people who are maybe not as in tune with the denominational structures of christianity or or the uh or pop christianity i guess yeah and just let me clarify what i meant was more to use that as an analogy of that kind of disconnect um it was i'm not saying that necessarily one is really the other but in the sense that like I think one of the things that's come across to me a thousand times over is that for Niebuhr, your ethics had, you had to have ethics, which flowed from your theology. You had to really believe that you could do something in the world and actually impact it for the good. No, absolutely. And now I remember what I wanted to say was that despite his, at least Fox's take on his relation with Niebuhr, when he went to Switzerland, he went out of his way to, you know, show respect to Bart. He met with him. Uh, I don't think he knew about his uh, his affair. Um, uh, but interestingly, so I, I think, again, my, my only point was he was, in terms of polarization, both he and Heschel were people who bridged divides. They could speak to liberals. They could speak to traditionalists. I mean, here, here Heschel was far ahead of his time on the on the issue of religious pluralism, which today you know, is, is, is huge. I remember, I, I don't know if it was in this piece or another piece, I quoted uh, um, uh, Wilfred Cantwell Smith, who was the professor at Harvard Divinity School, um, who, who said that even in the 1960s, you know, it seemed to him that the issue of religious pluralism was as big an issue as, you know, explaining evil in the world and yet it was really not something that people focused on whereas today when they do surveys and say well you know if a person is a good person will they get into heaven if they're hindu or muslim or and over nine of ten americans say well of course well that was certainly not the the view theologically for for many centuries and so i think bart being a a, an exclusivist is, is sort of out of fashion from that uh, perspective, um, even though he may still speak strongly to the faithful. Um, 
but uh, I think Niebuhr was able to interact with him and respect him for who he was. And the same with Heschel. He, you know, could teach. He was the first um, Jewish professor, visiting professor at Union. But on the other hand, he had uh, folks who came from deeply insular backgrounds, similar to uh, the coffee shop uh, that you worked at, uh, Cliff. Uh, and he kept in touch with those relatives. He seemed to be able to keep those ideas in his head at the same time. And Americans seem to have a much harder time doing that. I have a much harder time doing that, uh, even having Thanksgiving dinner with people who, who are on the opposite uh, end of the uh, political and religious spectrum from me. But well, look I at us now. We have... Jewish tradition and Christian tradition coming together on a podcast, right? So brought together by your wonderful piece. So I wonder, um, one of the things that I kind of wondered as I went through this, because this is something obviously I'm exploring a little bit for myself, because I didn't really get a, a chance to learn about it prior to this. But do you think one of the things that underlies that, their ability to do that would be dialectical thinking? Do you think that that's something that um, allowed them to live in the tension a little bit? Um, because I feel like, you know, yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll let you answer the question before I ask another one. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, I, I think a key to Niebuhr and his, I know in the previous podcast, you referred to his chameleon-like nature, but I think to refer to his dialectical-like nature would not be inaccurate. You'll, I mean, you guys are the the experts. I Again, I feel at times overmatched uh in talking to you about something that's a not my tradition and not my specialty but one of the um one of the key features of Niebuhr and and one of the most admirable parts of him is that um you know he he let the dialectic lead him and then he acted on that so you know, he was a pacifist and then he worked through it and then he was no longer a pacifist and he was a socialist and he worked through it and then he was no longer a socialist. Um, so I think, and you know, he was a, uh, he, he used the concept of, of sin as something to anchor his theology and then he found irony and, and he moved on beyond that. So I think the key to my mind in reading biographies of Niebuhr is that he was unafraid to change he wasn't too concerned about what people would think of him. He just wanted to be true to himself, true to what he saw as um, as his tradition. So if yeah. that's what you mean by dialectic, Zach, then I would agree with you. But is well, that what you mean by dialectic? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, that's that's totally right. On. I, I Again, I don't have a ton of expertise. I've only ever read one book by Heschel, but is that something that I guess, I guess my question, I should have asked it more specifically, which do you think that that's something that Heschel and Niebuhr shared in common? Or do you think that was a difference between them? Because um, I don't, I don't know Heschel's work as much. So, but I wonder if, you know, those long walks along the the riverfront, I wonder if they were kind of doing some synthesis, you know, doing, putting, putting the ideas together. <clears throat> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they influenced each other. You know, they say that, People don't really know what they talked about. His wife, Niebuhr's wife, wrote a, spoke at a Catholic college, uh, I think in Minnesota, uh, 10 years after he died, and said, look, I, I really don't know what they talked about. And, and Elizabeth Niebuhr Sifton said the same. You know, they had warm memories of their walking together in, 
Niebuhr was taller than Heschel, and Mrs. Niebuhr was always, uh, Ursula Niebuhr was always worried because of, of uh, Reinhold's stroke that he would topple over, you know, and, 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 and fall onto Heschel. Um, but so she remembers those things, but, you know, they were private conversations. I'm sure they influenced each other, but, you know, we'll never know because one of the great things about this relationship is that it's not very well known. Uh, Cap uh, uh, Edward Kaplan, uh, uh, Heschel's biographer, said the relationship between Niebuhr and Heschel was largely undocumented. Um, people know about it and are proud of it. Certainly at the seminaries, they're, they refer to you know Heschel's relationship with Niebuhr, um, but not a lot is known about it. And so that's what made it even more interesting to write about because there really was not a lot of source material on it. So to answer your question, Zach, I assume they influenced each other, but we don't really know. I just had one thing. Aaron's going to ask a question here in a second, but I I think just looking at Heschel, where he comes in on the scene of Jewish thinking, which was in a lot of ways kind of dominated by a Maimonides type of understanding of God, this God is immutable, God is uh, unspeakable, God is unimaginable, and all of a sudden Heschel comes in and it's the nearness of God, uh, that you experience God every day in the amazement. There's a collision happening there that Heschel is living out, just like Niebuhr was, that's happening in his own life, that he's, uh, they're both outsiders. So there's kind of a, a dialectic constantly at work through their own lives of working out these these different perspectives. But. You're, you're absolutely right, Cliff. And of course, one of the great ironies is that, uh, you know, as you covered in the uh, in previous podcast, you know, Richard White and Fox looks at Niebuhr's embrace of the Hebrew prophets and says, you know, what's specifically Christian about this as opposed to <laughs> Jewish? And then uh, on the other side, you have what you talk about, Cliff, his his view of God as being near to us, which is, you know, much closer to a Christian, a stereotypical Christian yeah. view of God, you know, the the, the criticism uh, in certain quarters that, you know, the Jewish God or the Muslim God uh, version of God is too remote and that people need that that warm embrace of a, of a personal a view of God. Well, you have it in, in Heschel, and maybe that's why he's the only American Jewish theologian whose writings have been translated into Urdu, Korean, and Portuguese. Um, you know, he, he really is someone who is embraced by Christians as much as any Jewish thinker, except perhaps or equal to Martin Buber. Well, it's really interesting. I, I'll just say this. Sorry, I'm, I keep jumping in on Aaron. Um one of the it is really fascinating because you know i come from a lot more conservative christian background just in terms of like where i went to school i went to moody bible institute um and then i went to western seminary in portland but um it's really interesting because one of the one of the authors that they're like in the, in those schools that they're not really threatened by from like a jewish perspective like because typically you try to keep it um like in the christian tradition right you don't read commentaries by people that are from other traditions typically but it's interesting because he kind of like threads the needle. You know, it's like all of a sudden you realize you're reading a book by, you know, they're like, here, I want to teach you about the Sabbath. And they'll give you a book by uh, Heschel. And it, and you don't even know, <clears throat> you know, you're reading a, a book by a guy that's Jewish. 
because they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't, there's something about the way that he writes that they don't find threatening. You know what I mean? There's something about the way, and it's like you're talking about, you know, he's, both these characters are really able to kind of cross lines and kind of find their way into places that other people aren't. Cross Broadway. Yeah. Can I ask you a question to follow up on that point here? And then ask something different. So yeah. the, 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 this is so interesting because I, the one thing that struck me, and I don't know if you were quoting this off of memory or if you were just kind of being exaggerating the point, but I believe you said something to the effect of nine in 10 Americans, if they were asked who's going to go to heaven, they or you know, they would probably say, oh, everyone's going to go to heaven. So it's a really weird thing, phenomenon in our culture where the pluralism or difference is kind of crumbling to some sort of unified thing. But if you put a bunch of Christians in a room with some Muslims or Jewish people, you might, and you like, hey, this person says something about you, they might go out and like start beating up each other. And get, they might group up together. But in a weird way, Niebuhr and Heschel, their theologies align so much that the differences seem to kind of just fall beneath the surface and there's something about the similarities that just kind of scream forth what is it that makes people like Niebuhr and Heschel popular but threatening in the way that they threaten the traditional boundaries of religious identity whilst in our own culture the traditional boundaries of religious identity is constantly being stepped over does that make sense yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I think uh, I, I think uh, Aaron, this is the the keystone of twenty first century um, American religious life. Is that the boundaries uh, are so fluid because you know families just have uh, you know maybe maybe Muslim Hindu uh, and, and Buddhist is. Not quite as common, although the the concept of a Hindu, where one part one parent is Hindu and one is is Jewish, is 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 something that one hears uh, with some frequency. We have a friend uh, who a family who's who's in that situation. But I think as a result of of you know much greater communication interaction, uh, these boundaries have. Um, have been more difficult to maintain for Heschel and Niebuhr. If you if you adopt a view of of Niebuhr that is on the liberal side, he was never terribly troubled by that, um, and had many friends who were uh, you know uh, from lapsed religious backgrounds. Um, and uh, you know the the old joke about atheists for Niebuhr, he was that kind of figure who could easily appeal to them. Um, Heschel too, I think, was was much more an adherent of boundaries in his own life, but he he was very insistent on respecting other traditions. He said it is arrogant for you know anybody to criticize Christians or Muslims for their faith. Um, he was very excited at the end of his life where. He had never been on a panel with a, with a Muslim and toward the end of his life said, you know, I always prayed 
for the well-being of Muslims, but I never was able to discuss God with them. And he was on a he was on a panel with, I believe, a, 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 a great Sufi scholar. And so I think that they, even if the boundaries were a little more rigid in society, there was an openness and a respect and also an integrity. And I think uh, we were talking before about Karl Barth's uh, 10-year affair. It's interesting that that Niebuhr um, had a very complicated relationship with Paul Tillich, who, uh, you know, among 20th century Protestant theologians was was right up there, um, you know, with the biggest names. And when Niebuhr you know, found out that he had hit on a union, young union student uh, and, 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 you know, and, and his own adulteries, he sort of cut Tillich off despite, uh, you know, his, his great uh, uh, theological uh, achievements. He was a systematic theologian, unlike Niebuhr. So I think it was um, uh, a respect for boundaries, but a concern with integrity, with ethics, with respect. And I think that drove both of them and enabled them to come out in the in the highly interesting places that they they ended up. It's, it's really interesting because because there is difference, obviously, but there is so much similarities between figures like Niebuhr and Heschel, um, and Tillich and Barr, as you uh, so astutely reminded us. And in in your piece specifically, you really start off by noti- noting the differences between these two figures, between Niebuhr and Heschel. And uh, c- please c- criticize me if I'm being uh, if I'm wrong here, but you know you do go into the similarities, but they're kind of you know the surface level. I mean, they're um they're, they're similarities like you know they they both had dads who were clergymen and they followed in their father's footsteps. You know they uh. They, they had similarities like that in, in terms of like that. But um, there there seems to be some major differences. I mean, Niebuhr, as you said, you know, even though he's considered a pessimist and Heschel optimist, these sort of differences also kind of um, uh, f- unravel. unravel once you kind of get into the agreement. Yeah, thank, thank you, Cliff. Um, but, you know, Niebuhr does highlight the, the, the propensity of evil acts uh, from human beings. Yeah, as near the end of the article, you state that Heschel is more in line with human beings as symbols of God and that human deeds are sources of holiness. And I want you to like, if you can, because, you know, we obviously don't know the conversations that happen between Heschel and Niebuhr on their walks. But I, I kind of, if you can, if you could do off the spot, I want you to imagine we're sitting with or walking with Niebuhr and Heschel and a debate unfolds between uh human deeds being the source of holiness and neighbor. How, what would you speculate would be the conversation? How would that go? Well, I think, Aaron, I'm not sure how the conversation would go, but Heschel would probably reference his, his background. Uh, and, you know, one of the, I think the earliest uh, guy to systematize Heschel's thought, because he was not a systematic theologian, no, nor was, was Niebuhr, um, that individual noted how this idea of holiness permeated the Hasidic youth that Heschel enveloped him. Uh, just the notion of, of God being present was an everyday experience. I, I certainly don't feel that. And so I, 
I find it harder to relate to Heschel. Maybe it's a it's a way of being, and I'm just much more rational and much more lawyer-like. But I think that that Heschel's view of that stems from uh, from his background, whereas Niebuhr, you know, grew up in rural Missouri, where people I don't know they were concerned with. Uh, the crops and and the the farming season um, because he, he really lived in 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 that kind of small town. But I would say, Aaron, maybe this is not exactly the answer you want. I I think that they would be able to relate to each other on a deep level, not just a surface level, because one of the other interesting things beyond the irony of you know Niebuhr having distinctly. Jewish tendencies and Heschel having some distinctly Christian tendencies is that they both had came from very insular backgrounds. And I think that's one of the most admirable aspects of them, which is Niebuhr grew up as a country bumpkin. He never kind of felt part of the, the world of the, of the highborn uh, people he saw when he was a student at Yale he resented the fact that he had a crummy education, uh, you know, growing up and Heschel too, you know, didn't have to, was largely self-taught. I think the, the, the insularity that they overcame sort of helped them transform in, in, in Heschel's view, this notion of holiness or a, a God who is near us into a broader construct that could appeal to people outside their tradition. And the same with Niebuhr. He could take, um, he had that personal quality that allowed him to move beyond the insularity to, to see um, sort of broader patterns in international affairs and in, you know, other things well beyond his um, his beginnings in rural Missouri. So, Aaron, I'm not sure that answers your question in terms of what the conversation would be like, but I think these were these were unusual men, unusual human beings who had both integrity and the courage to move beyond their comfort zone um, to interpret ideas important to them, like holiness for Eschel and like sin or irony for Niebuhr in a way that could connect with a much broader audience. And I, I think, I think you're right that the answer is wonderful. And I, I think you've really done a good job of explaining, you know, the reasons behind it. I, I think they probably would have a lot more agreement than disagreement in the end. Um, well, I mean, I, I think, Go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. Um, that's right. Well, I was—I would say <clears throat> it seems fitting, though, to some degree, because it—it it almost seems like if Niebuhr was going to have a close friend, he would need somebody that would be form a dialectic with him, some somebody that would that would oppose his ideas, you know, that would allow for that synthesis. You know what I mean? In the sense that, um, you know, I I thought it was really fascinating because I, again, I don't know a ton about Heschel other than the one I read his book on the prophets, and um, I didn't realize how like more mystical focused he was. And how it's fascinating to me because Niebuhr is so the opposite of that, in my mind, at least as I read him, that he is so beyond mystical ideas and things like that. Like he's just, that's just not like, it's almost like, he, but he wants a little bit of that. You know, he wants somebody that's going to challenge him that way to make him really kind of reassess and think in that way. I mean, as we're thinking about a hypothetical conversation, I think about that as I was reading through this, I was thinking it's so fascinating to me that, you know, his one of his closest friends is this guy that 
is more emphasizing the mystical personal relationship of God. And he has a tendency to kind of get away from that. So it, I wonder if that was really a challenge, a positive challenge for him. Yeah, no, I agree uh, with what you're saying, Zach. Makes sense. So it's well documented how involved um, Heschel was in, in activism. Martin Luther King famously uh, came out against the Vietnam War at Riverside Church, right there on the Upper West Side. Is where I assume you still live, probably. Uh, and it's right next to Union and, and JTS. Uh, so I actually like went back and watched that. You can watch it on YouTube, um, him do that. And you can see plain as day, this bright white haired, you know, this white head bopping around a big white bearded man uh, wandering around. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's, that's Abraham Heschel. And uh, pointed him out, brought my wife in. Hey, do you see that? And she doesn't, she doesn't know who he is, but I was like, that's him. And uh, it, it, it just struck me, this guy was everywhere. I mean, he, in a lot of the ways that we normally talk on this podcast about Niebuhr being everywhere, like all the time, constantly moving. Uh, Heschel was that same thing. But I'm wondering, what could you speak a little bit to his relationship with Martin Luther King? Um, did they have a relationship? And, and maybe, you know, his legacy, uh, Heschel's legacy in the civil rights movement. Well, Cliff. I think Heschel is better known today for his civil rights work than his theology by far. And, you know, there's the iconic photo of him in the front row with Martin Luther King at the uh, second Selma to Montgomery March. In the first one, uh, Congressman John Lewis, one of the one of the great Americans of the 20th century, uh, had his skull cracked, uh, you know, in the march. And Heschel could easily have been beaten in that second march, um, but he had the courage to uh, to show up. He met, uh, remember, Martin Luther King died, uh, was murdered uh, before he was even 40 years old. So uh, Heschel met him maybe five, six years before he died, but they immediately formed uh, uh, a bond. And it was not... Um, you know, jumping on the on the civil rights bandwagon was not uh, an obvious thing to do, and so it took it took courage for for Heschel to do that. Here's a person who had never even seen a black person until he had uh, he came to America in his in his thirties, and the same was true of Niebuhr. He never ne- never met anybody who he knew well who was Jewish until he was in his thirties. So again, it speaks to their the quality of their of their character and their courage. But once they became friends, they actually uh, became quite close. And there were repeated interactions between, um, uh, you know, between Heschel and Martin Luther King, just as there were between, you know, uh, for, for those of your Catholic uh, listeners, between Thomas Merton, who the the monk who was uh, you know a real rock star in the Catholic world in the in the fifties and sixties, um, they they had a relationship and and Merton called him the you know the greatest living theologian. Say how do these two guys come together? Um, so I think Heschel just was very insistent on from a moral standpoint, and this was something that he, that he and Heschel. Uh, uh, you know, uh, we're very much alike on, insistent on personal integrity, insistent on what was right and what was right in their mind drove 
what they did. Huh. And, and that is really the story of Heschel's um, involvement with Martin Luther King and the, and the civil rights movement. Vietnam, to, to end there, and to be quick about it, was much more controversial. There were people in the um, at the Jewish Theological Seminary who were, you know, to the right of Heschel and political spectrum, who, you know, gave the opening prayer at uh, Nixon's inauguration, you know, uh, in 1969, and some who felt he was really uh, way out in left field when it came to uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, so that was more controversial. And uh, although Niebuhr supported it, uh, not as fiercely as, as, as Heschel did, the anti-war uh, sentiment. So I think that uh, his civil rights work has held up, uh, you know, remarkably well over a half a century. And he's seen justly as a hero who really was one of the um, white clerics who stepped forward in the most dramatic way when it really counted. Well, yeah, I mean, my, I guess my final question for you that I'm super curious about is, you know, we asked you kind of like the backstory of this, and then you said there's, there's a lot more content that you're, that you've already kind of gone through. What, so what's, what's next for you? Like in terms of writing about this, or are you going to write about it more? Are you going to, is there projects you're working on that you, or is that all top secret? Oh, it's certainly not top secret. It's it's a question of uh, am I out of my mind uh, to continue? The the thirty five hundred words that became the this essay literally were a product of so many revisions and years of work and many many years of failure. Um, but in the course of that, you know, many drafts of other things um, have been written. We talked about this this crossing Broadway theme and sort of just as Dickens had his, his tale of two cities, sort of, I have my tale of two seminaries. And so I have another piece that is, you know, uh, gathering dust, um, which I have to figure out what to do with um, that really looks at American religious life through the, through these seminaries and, and, you know, what's happening to them. I mean, both Union and JTS have had financial troubles. They've had enrollment troubles. Uh, you know, JTS or, or Union has moved. I remember uh, Randall Balmer, who taught at Columbia uh, and Barnard before he went to Dartmouth. Uh, I, I went went to him and I, I knew somebody and, and met him. And I sat in his office and I said, what do you think about this idea of a tale of two seminaries? And he said, well, you know, union is really not indicative of American Protestantism. It's on the far left of American Protestantism. So if you want to if you want to talk about, you know, seminaries more in the Protestant mainstream, you ought to you ought to go uh, maybe to a seminary similar to one you attended um, or some have suggested maybe. General Seminary in New York, uh, the Episcopalian Seminary, which is more ritually traditional, even if it's intellectually open-minded, like uh, like JTS. So, something of the notion of how is American religion, uh, religious life, morphed through the struggles of, and I think they are struggles of these two very distinguished 
seminaries with such long histories who are struggling with how to capture the hearts and minds of the American public, which is becoming increasingly disaffiliated from denominational uh, religion. And I'm sure that's something that the three of you struggle with as pastors. Well, I'll tell you this much. I would be fascinated if you did something on Union and JTS. I understand Bomber's argument. I understand what he's saying with that. But Union's pretty cool to look through uh, the history of Union. I mean, they going all the way back to the, the fights over science and religion. Um, uh, Briggs, uh, Charles Augustus Briggs is like the guy who was I think he was uh went on heresy trial in the presbyterian church and union ultimately broke away because of that i mean that has told like just that alone has kind of shaped the history of christianity all the way up through tillich and niebuhr uh and james cone i mean there's so much history there to be told um just from the union perspective and i'm sure there's much to be told from jts so if you ever do that i want to read that and i want to have you back on to to discuss yeah. that well, it will be an honor to uh, to appear, and I must thank all of you for allowing me to appear because my wife and two daughters, they have limited patience for discussions <laughs> of this sort. It's like, okay, dad's off on his thing, you know, with, uh, with Heschel, Niebuhr, and theology, uh, and, uh, you know, they, they can take only so much of it. So, so that's why we started this podcast. So I mean, we have a similar struggle. We talk about it too, either. No, yeah. just joking. Um, Aaron, do you have a last question? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll ask one more question. Just, just want to first say thank you ever so much for coming on here and giving us uh, your attention and uh, paying attention to us as well. It's, it's, it's very, um, it's just great to have some, some dialogue with different faith traditions and different people from different persuasions. Um, now, I just this might be a, a hard hitting question. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, you know, Heschel was at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, where both um, Cliff and I went, are at, uh, went to Cincinnati Christian University together. It's just a hop, a skip away from our old university. Um, and in the past, like, was it 10 years ago, maybe, or maybe mm. eight, seven? It was, it was 2016, right after Trump yeah. was elected. It was vandalized. Uh, with paintings of swastikas on, put on the entrance sign. And uh, it was a really dark day in town. And I couldn't help but wonder, you know, the, the friendship that, the unlikely friendship, as you call it, um, between these two figures has a very big political component to it. Like this bridging of faith traditions. And I wonder in our kind of Trump era, of politics or you know even just the continuation of like white supremacy or whatever you want to call it do you think that this friendship between Niebuhr and Heschel can actually provide something to the public I mean it, Niebuhr's provided to President Obama so many political figures but what about the public what what can this friendship say to the public well, Aaron, I think, uh, first of all, it is fascinating that uh, both you and Cliff are in Cincinnati, where, uh, for your listeners of the reform movement, which is the most liberal uh, in Judaism, JTS being in the middle, the, the so-called conservative movement, which is actually fairly liberal, and then, of course, orthodoxy uh, on the right, Heschel went there. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a natural fit for him at all, because he kept kosher and 
Uh, the reform movement, of course, is liberal. That's my tradition. Uh, I'm I'm reform. Uh, so he he was a little bit of a fish out of water there. He was no stranger to the bigotry that you um, that you reference, uh, Aaron. But then, as I point out in my essay, neither was Niebuhr, because people are forgetting that uh, more Americans have German ancestry in America than English or Irish. And there was a lot of anti-German sentiment <clears throat> after World War I. Uh, Niebuhr's brother, you know, changed his name from Helmut to H. Richard because he didn't really want to be um, discounted because he was, he was German. I think that both of them understood what bigotry was about. I think James Cohn, the, the founder of, or often called the founder of uh, Black liberation theology, uh, was uh, a bit critical of Niebuhr. In fact, I was honored to actually have lunch with him maybe 10, 15 years ago uh, as I talked to Randall Balmer and other people about this. So somebody knew him and I actually had lunch with him. And at the lunch uh, and in writing, I mean, he criticized Niebuhr as being, uh, and I think that's the consensus today, uh, too much of a gradualist in civil rights. And maybe that's true. He certainly was much more gradualist than, than, than Heschel was. But both men understood bigotry at a very deep level. And Niebuhr reacted as much uh, toward his relatives who supported the Nazis in Germany. He was... Uh, unequivocally cut them off, refused to support them financially. So again, his ethics led him to his positions. I would hope that today, if they were alive and addressing the evils of bigotry, the evils of polarization that America is um, uh, suffering from, uh, that they would speak loudly to this because it affected both of them. In a, in, a, in a very dramatic way. And so I would hope, Aaron, that they would, would have a lot to say on this topic uh, that would be uh, healing rather than inflaming, as is often the case uh, in public discourse today. You know, I just made a funny connection that, so Heschel, as you said, didn't do a lot with Holocaust stuff. Niebuhr didn't do a lot with uh, the the problems of America, the black struggle, and yet Niebuhr uh, addressed, you know, Israel establishing Israel as a Jewish state. Uh, he was very on the forefront of reducing um, anti bigotry. He was an ally. He was considered an ally to to Jewish Americans. And Heschel kind of did Niebuhr's job for him and uh, standing up for for uh, the black folk here in the United States. So it's interesting how they bridge the opposite directions of maybe what was most natural uh, you would think uh, for them yeah. to address. Um, so I got a real, I got a last question here, you guys. Gordon, you can participate if you want. Uh, this, it's, it's a really dumb, silly question, uh, just forewarning. Probably the dumbest question we'll ever hear on these two. So uh, since today is the special Valentine's Day episode and we are concentrated on the uh, Heschel Niebuhr bromance is what I'm calling it. I have a very bromantic question. There's harps playing right now in the background, um, by the way, that I uh, dubbed over them uh, later. 
So there's a concept in Hollywood called a meet cute, where in a romantic comedy, the leading love interests meet for the first time. It's normally kind of a quirky occasion where one of them gets their foot stuck in cement and the other has to tend to them or someone's cat gets stuck in a tree. And, and that's where, you know, that's where the, the two main characters meet and fall in love. There comes a point where they're, you know, the sparks fly and their eyes meet. So since we don't have much documentation on, on uh, this friendship of theirs, their actual personal, we don't have any letters. I looked, I, I looked it up. I couldn't find any letters between Niebuhr and, and Heschel. So I'm wondering if we were to write a Hollywood meetup for the first time between these two, how would it look? How would their first meeting look? Um, their meet cute. Uh, I've I've written out something. Uh, Aaron's got something <laughs> as well. Um, we could go around. Uh, so mine. I'm imagining a West Side Story kind of theme. Okay, uh, where the Union heretics. And by the way, that was our in the Columbia University intramural leagues. That was our name. Was the Union heretics. But uh, we're on one side of the street, right? And the wholesome, you know, JTS students are on the other. And there's all these turf wars going on between them. So it's kind of a forbidden relationship, right? But one day, you know, Niebuhr and Heschel leave their seminaries and separately go to Columbia University Library to find one single publication they can't find at their own libraries, a single rare publication by none other than Martin Buber, who they both loved. They meet because they both grab the same book at the same time and they fight over it. And then they become BFFs, sneaking out from their respective seminaries and reading Boober together. Dear God, I've, I've prepared way too much for this question. <laughs> this is actually kind of sad. I, I'm almost embarrassed to read this. <laughs> okay. Well, just say that you, you had a notebook theme. Well, yeah. The movie The Notebook. I was trying to allude to it so people can get it, but yeah, it's... Um... This breathes more like a uh, an introduction to the movie than anything. This is in a recently discovered notebook penned by Heschel. Susanna, his daughter, was kind enough to retell the intimate moments between Ryan Niebuhr and her father after Ryan's stroke. It was a dark time. A world was shaping itself after a global conflict. A world having to come to grips with the atrocities it has committed. Yet it was a dark time for Ryan. Post-stroke, his memory began to fade. His wit not as sharp as it once was. But the one thing that endured was a deep friendship. And this notebook was a story of this friendship, this romance. Beginning with this chance encounter at the local UTS fair, Heschel introduced himself to Ryan. He asked him out on a theologian's date, an oh event where like taking a boat ride on a lake near your house or buying an old worn down property and building it up, making a room for your spouse to paint. This is the, the plot of the notebook. Okay. <laughs> the okay. exact plot of the notebook. And it's kind of sad that I knew it almost full thing. Minds <laughs> met. Clash. Okay. 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 You know what? I kind of feel, yeah, I'm going to cut you off right oh there. God. I read we're, the whole thing We're before. here with a very, we're here with a serious, <laughs> reputable oh know, my God. lawyer who's written yeah. volumes on, and we're, we're being silly. Zach, you have anything to contribute? No. No. Titanic theme? No? Okay. No. All right. And you know what? I, I, I'm going to leave it because uh, <laughs> I think I, I'm going to, I'm going to mess with it if I, if I try to improve on Aaron and Cliff. So I think you guys, you <laughs> well, guys I got shut down. I don't know. You did. It, it, it got a little, little angle. 
and uh, and it's a beautiful thing to 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 appear on Valentine's Day because ultimately um, uh, it was an unlikely friendship that really ended up being a beautiful and poignant uh, story. I yeah. I love the you know the way in which when you just really think about how I mean here is the what many many would. Uh, a fellow who many would call the greatest uh, American Protestant theologian of the 20th century, and he dies, and he chooses this rabbi to be the only eulogist at his funeral. I mean, even today, that would be a pretty remarkable thing. And I, I love have... the I love the connection you made to Jonathan Edwards. So I I never put this together before. This was Jonathan Edwards' pulpit. That's that, right. That now Heschel yeah. was giving the eulogy for Niebuhr at. Unbelievable. And Stockbridge, mm -hmm. Massachusetts. I actually know the uh, uh through Twitter, I know the 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 guy who's just retired from there as pastor at that same exact church. He go, he could see Reinhold's grave uh, aside from it. That was an amazing connection that I'd never uh, heard before. But Jonathan Edwards pulpit, Heschel's given the eulogy. Right, and and it's 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 a remarkable thing. Although I think Heschel was very flattered by Niebuhr's attention. After all, he was world famous. He was fifteen years older, and he was a German American. He was an assimilationist. He, you know, he urged his congregation to sort of uh, not focus on the fatherland. So he was quite different from Heschel in that regard. But you know, he. He was somebody who you wouldn't have thought the two of them uh, would become friends, uh, let alone that he would deliver the eulogy in, in Jonathan Edwards' church. But yet they did. And to my mind, that's that makes it a poignant, beautiful story that has universal significance, even if they weren't the great theologians that they were. One, uh, <clears throat> this is a bit speculative, but I always wonder if maybe that... It, that it all played a part in the uh, John McCain asking Barack Obama because they were both very big Niebuhr fans. Um, I, I wonder if the, the that eulogy was influenced when Barack Obama gave McCain's. I've always wondered that. Good. Well, uh, we want to thank you again, yeah. uh, uh, Gordon Mailer, and for our audience, uh, you could check out his piece on Tablet. Just uh, you could just Google Tablet Heschel Niebuhr, and you'll get it popped up. It's a it's a wonderful article. I hope we did it justice. I mean, we we didn't touch on a lot of the the, the specifics, but um, we really encourage our audience to go check it out. We've actually posted it on our Twitter site, so you can uh, check us out on on there. Um, but thank you so much, Gordon, for coming on. Well, again, it was an honor and a pleasure. And my wife and children, thank you for uh, <laughs> giving me an outlet. Good. <laughs> well, if you ever write that article on the two, Tale of Two Seminaries, we'd love to have you back. So. Okay. And good luck to, to all three of you and the important work that you're doing as pastors uh, in an America that is not sufficiently appreciative of the sacrifices and the importance of your work. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Love Thy Neighbor. We want to thank, uh, again, our guest, Gordon Mailer, for the great conversation. And we want to thank you all, our listeners, for tuning in. Make sure you like and subscribe, write us a good review, and follow us on Twitter, at Love Thy Neighbor. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.